MSW Media. News with swearing. Daily beans, daily beans. Daily beans, daily beans. Hello and welcome to the Daily Beans for Thursday, October 22nd, 2020. Today, Trump failed to disclose a Chinese bank account. Lawyers say they can't find the parents of 545 migrant children. Pope Francis voices support for same-sex civil unions. Ghislaine Maxwell communications are set to be released today in the Epstein case after she failed to block them in court. The White House looks at cutting COVID funding in Democratic cities. And Sasha Baron Cohen's new movie depicts Rudy Giuliani with his hands down his pants. I'm your host, A.G., and with me today is Dana Goldberg. Dana, how are you today? (laughs) Honestly, I had to in, I had to hold in my laughter during the entire beginning of your <laughs> I was tucking in my shirt. Mm, just like Dershowitz, right? Oh yeah, I got massages oh from God. underage girls, but I kept my underwear on. Okay, Alan. Oh God, Dershowitz, he's so gross. They're all so gross. I don't understand. Yeah, and, and it's. It, it makes total sense, right? Like why QAnon would, because you know the Trump administration, they're always like, deny and then accuse the other person of that which you are guilty uh, and then attack them. And so it, 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 it stands to reason that they would try to say that Democrats are, you know, cannibalistic um, baby traffickers in a sex trafficking ring for pedophilia. Like that's their whole, and they drink baby blood. Like that's the whole QAnon thing. Totally normal. And and yeah. they, it seems like they would just call every all like the Hollywood elites pedophiles. It's all them always. That's why when Trump was like, "There's a you know, there's a, a child sex ring in the in the basement of a pizza parlor," I was like, "Okay, I think we need to start looking in the pizza parlors of Florida to see which one has a basement because <laughs> clearly." They're projecting. Yeah. Yeah. And and so many people have tweeted that if you, you know, for federal investigators, just look for whatever Trump accuses the Bidens of doing and you'll find that crime somewhere. So a uh, big show today, though. We'll get to we'll talk more of it. Yes. I, so many headlines. There's so much happening. My God. How do you, Adam, we're going to keep up. Yeah. We are going to keep up. And it's not going to slow down. The shit show lullaby will not slow down between now and uh, probably I would I'd like to say Election Day, but the whole lame duck session for the next three months, it's going to be a shit show. Um, Flip it blue today. We're following up with the Democratic candidate for the lone U.S. congressional seat in Wyoming, Lynette Grable. She's incredible. She had a debate with Liz Cheney, you know, Dick Cheney's crotch fruit, who is uh, mm-hmm. just a just a giant crotch piece of shit. Um, I'll be talking with Matthew Miller, um, who I've been told I need to say is the best looking former spokesman of the Department of Justice and best looking guy on Twitter. Also, MSNBC justice and security analyst. He's awesome. And he and I are going to talk about this horrendous story about from the pilot program of the, you know, zero tolerance policy at the border. Um, And now we have almost 600 uh, children from infancy, you know, to 18 who who they cannot find their parents. Just can't find them. Just can't find them. Can't find them. They didn't keep any paperwork. They just can't find them. Which blows my mind because having worked for a government agency forever, it's everything is kept in files, duplicate, triplicate. You have to keep the files for 75 years, you know, otherwise you violate the Records Act. Like there's how they just didn't 
uh, <laughs> it blows my mind. It seems like it has to be intentional. Um, but yeah, he and I are going to talk about that, which this, this story is just devastating. And of course, uh, you and I, Dana, will wrap up with the good news. So I'm excited for it. Thank God. Thank the baby Jesus. If you believe in that. I mean, I'm Jew. I think he was a good guy. So here we go. <laughs> Thank the baby. I Jesus. mean, I don't think he was the Messiah. I think he was a good carpenter, but he's not coming back. <laughs> was he? Who knows? What, what was it? Jim, Jim Gaffigan? Like maybe he was terrible at cabinetry and that's why he became the Messiah. Could be. Uh, yeah, we don't know. The records just aren't there. Uh, but we do have a lot of news to get to. Let's hit the hot notes. Hot notes. All right, lead story today comes from the New York Times. It's part of their series of reporting on Trump's taxes, and this is a big one. President Trump and his allies have tried to paint Biden as soft on China, in part by pointing to Hunter Biden's business dealings there. Uh, Senate Republicans actually produced a report asserting, among other things, that Biden's son Hunter opened a bank account with a Chinese businessman. <gasps> oh, and it, as it turns out... Um, <laughs> uh, that China is is one of only three foreign nations, the others are Britain and Ireland, where Mr. Trump maintains a bank account, according to an analysis of the president's tax records, which were obtained by the Times. Speaking of projecting, yes. Yeah, accuse that, uh, others of that which you are guilty. The foreign accounts do not show Trump's public financial disclosures. They, they aren't on his public financial disclosures, so he kept it a secret, uh, where he has to list his personal assets, uh, but apparently he didn't hear legally because these this the, you know this account is held under a corporate name. The Chinese account is controlled by Trump International Hotels Management LLC, with the tax records showing he paid one hundred eighty eight thousand five hundred sixty one dollars in taxes in China while pursuing licensing deals there from twenty thirteen to twenty fifteen. But the bombshell of this fucking story comes in paragraph twenty. New York Times is so good at that they bury the lead. Quote, in 2017, the company reported an unusually large spike in revenue, $17.5 million, more than the previous five years combined. It was accompanied by a $15.1 million withdrawal by Mr. Trump from the company's capital account. Huh. Huh. That's so interesting. What was going on in 2007? Oh, he became the president of the United <laughs> States. You know whose taxes I would like to see? I want to see how much Ivanka paid in taxes to China because I bet it's a lot. I bet it's a fucking lot. Mm, yeah, he paid $750 here and he paid $200,000 in China, uh, which is still a little low for $15.1 million in revenue. Any normal person, I, I guess there's not such a thing as a normal person making $15 million. But anyone, anyone else would have to pay about $3.5 million in taxes on that. Um. But, you know, whatever. And we recently learned that Mueller's investigation had a clandestine fourth team. We knew about the three major teams from Weissman's book. There was the fourth team that was looking into that $10 million payout to Trump that seemed to come from Egypt. And that's who the secret company from country A was, was this uh, Egypt state-owned bank. The story says that the fourth team was partly looking into the Egypt transaction. And I wonder if another part was this account in China and what happened to the $15 million Trump withdrew and where it went. It's also of note that a judge in the Manhattan DA Mazar's case had asked about foreign entities during a hearing on the matter in which Trump is trying to block the grand jury subpoena of his own financial records from Mazar's. I believe strongly that the that Cy Vance already has Trump's taxes, just like the New York Times does. In fact, I personally think the New York Times got them from Cy Vance. But uh, Cy Vance needs the Mazar's financial documents to understand where the money came from, uh, at, like from in Egypt and China, and 
likely Russia, and how it was spent. So we will keep you posted on that. It's going to get hotter, closer. It's just going to keep going. It's going to keep going. New York Times is going to keep dropping these dumps. It's amazing. They are doing so much good work. And if they're like comedians and they have a big closer. Oh, do it. You know, like we, we need it. We, we save our like our are like one of our best jokes at for the end of the set you close with it hopefully you're trying to get a standing ovation you know if they've got something worse than what we've already learned from the previous three (laughs) tax stories i can't even imagine and i have a feeling that's the way they put their set together let's hope all right the next story this is also um in my opinion big one because it's just the president being a douche again uh white house looks at cutting covid funding in democratic cities this is from politico so the white house is considering slashing millions of dollars for coronavirus relief hiv treatment screenings for newborns and other programs in democratic led cities that president donald trump has deemed and i quote anarchist jurisdictions according to the documents obtained by politico this is such bullshit. Um, this a lot comes to the Department of Justice. Notice California is not on there because California pays more in uh, taxes because we have one of the largest economies in the world. So, of course, California is not on there. Such crap. So the ones that are on there, though, Al, are New York, Portland, Oregon, Washington, D.C., and Seattle. They could basically lose funding for a wide swath of programs that serve their poorest, sickest residents after the president moved last month to restrict funding, escalating his political battle against liberal cities he sought to use as campaign foil. This is such crap, and I'll continue on with the story, but we have seen that the states with the highest COVID numbers are now red states. They are states that have uh, Republican governors. They are in the middle of America. They are Trump country. Mm-hmm. That's who's mm-hmm. got the highest COVID cases now, and it's escalating. And as of today, not one single state in the union is, is having their cases decrease. All 50 none. states are either stable or increasing in their numbers right now. This is the first time since the pandemic began. Oh, please be safe, people. Six feet and stop touching each other. And for God's sakes, Karen, put on a mask and stop yelling at Trader Joe's employees. I can't deal with these women anymore. Uh, The story goes on to say this move stems from September 2nd memo Trump wrote to the agencies telling them to curtail funding to anarchist jurisdictions. Three weeks later, Barr, who I haven't seen lately, have you? No. No. Barr labeled New York. Couldn't tell you where he is. Three weeks later, Barr labeled New York, Portland, and Seattle as, quote, anarchist jurisdictions and instructed departments to cut funding for D.C. as well. Each agency had until last Friday to submit their lists of recommendations, and HHS compiled the list from the 12 agencies it oversaw. Now, this is crazy because this list includes 185 programs. 185 programs that touch on everything from Trump's own initiative to end HIV transmission, which we all know is complete bullshit anyway, because he fired everyone that was on that task force at the beginning of his administration. However, uh, so the HIV transmission by the end of the decade and the opioid crisis and research into lung diseases. This list also includes funding for other programs like $423,000 for universal hearing screenings for newborns in the District of Columbia, housing for people in addiction recovery in Seattle, and services providing nutrition and mental health counseling to elderly New Yorkers. These are tons of programs that this petulant child, no offense to children, (laughs) is threatening to cut in these these Democratic cities. Unbelievable. Yeah. And we were wondering, like, I remember when Barr declared they were anarchist jurisdictions. I uh, mistakenly, I guess, or maybe not yet, I don't know, thought that that was a way to send in uh, troops, uh, you know, to to be able to legally go in and send send in like actual military 
troops, um, and which you know we may still see. They'll you know who knows the election is coming up. So, hmm. um, I have a bit of good news for you. I mean, it's going to be really fucking disgusting when we get it, but it's it's good news for justice, and that is that Ghislaine Maxwell's deposition discussing her sex life and Jeffrey Epstein is has been ordered to be released. That's today, Thursday at nine a.m. Uh, it's a four hundred page plus document, and it has to be unsealed. Uh, on Thursday, transcripts of interviews conducted with alleged sex trafficker Ghislaine Maxwell that reference her former boyfriend. Uh, it says here in the Daily Beast, the dead pedophile Jeffrey Epstein. That's what they've called him. I'm glad someone's labeling him correctly instead of businessman and New York philanthropist. Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. At least they're finally calling him what he is. The dead pedophile Jeffrey Epstein. And they contain intimate details about her sex life. And they, it should be made public no later than 9 a.m. Eastern on Thursday. This is according to the New York judge's order. The transcripts long sought after by Epstein's victims and the media are expected to shine unprecedented light on Maxwell and Epstein's life together and come from two days of depositions in 2016 for a since settled libel case filed against Maxwell by Epstein accuser Virginia Jufree. Maxwell's legal team has argued that that contains intimate information about her sex life and other personal matters. So you can't release those. And the judges say you're stupid. And so they're they're making they're making her them be unsealed. Uh, District Judge Loretta Presca marks what appears to be a final and resounding defeat to Maxwell's persistent attempts to keep this deposition secret. She's been fighting this for a while now. Um, Mm -hmm. On Monday, Second U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals ruled that Preska properly decided that the public had a right to access the documents. Her lawyers have argued the unsealing could interfere with Maxwell getting a fair trial next year. Um, Preska has firmly come down on the side of those seeking its unsealing. Uh, So we'll see what happens um, tomorrow morning. I don't know if there's going to be a last minute attempt to try to block it by trying to file a writ of certiorari with uh, the Supreme Court or an emergency stay request with the Supreme Court. Right, if convicted, she faces as much as 35 years in prison. Um, so, and according to court papers previously filed by her lawyers in the deposition, Maxwell made statements about consensual and intimate conduct with other adults, unquote. Mm-hmm. Sure, that's why you don't want uh, them released. Of course, because everything was up and up. It was all consensual, just like Rudy Giuliani's interview. Oh, my God. That was consensual, but however, I'm talking in a shirt. We'll get there. We'll get there, people. All right, this next one. Uh, this headline actually does affect uh, the LGBTQ community around the world. And let me tell you right now, Beans, uh, there's nothing I love more than a man who dresses in a silk robe telling me what I should do with my marriage. I mean, this is good news, though. However, Pope Francis expressed support for same-sex civil unions in remarks made in a documentary that premiered on Wednesday, a significant break from his predecessors that staked out new ground for the church and its recognition of gay people. The remarks coming from the leader of the Roman Catholic Church had the potential to shift debates about the legal status of same-sex couples in the nations around the globe and unsettled bishops worried that the unions threatened traditional marriage. And what the Pope said is what we have to create is a civil union law. That way they are legally covered. Now, Francis said, reiterating his view that gay people are children of God, quote, I stood up for that. Now, many Catholics and their allies outside the church welcomed the Pope's remarks, even as they said they understood Francis's opposition to gay marriage within the church remained absolute. Now, this is good news, but devil's advocate, uh, this also is one of those things that I feel like it's just a little piecemeal, just like, here's a little, just here's a little bit. So you all like, stop, like, stop wanting things because they've got so much going on within the Catholic church. Part of me, honestly, Allison is like, clean up your side of the road, like with your priests and everything else. I'm like, 
However, this does open up for great conversations within Roman Catholic families, even within the United States and across the world, because we started with civil unions too. So if we can start with civil unions there, maybe it can progress to full-blown marriage equality globally. We'll see what happens. So there's a little bit of good news, at least in that story. Yeah. And it's what I find super interesting too, and maybe I live just in this bubble. Uh, I'm I'm not sure. Uh, but, you know, I was baptized Catholic, raised Catholic, confirmed, uh, no longer practicing, recovering, I call it. Um, <laughs> Catholic, went to Catholic school for many years, learned that the Bible was symbolic. And we also learned evolution. And, you know, that, you know, I was brought up mostly Jesuit. So we're a little more chill. But none of the Catholics I know are anti, uh, you know, same-sex marriage. N- none of them. Right. Everyone's cool with it. And so, it, but to see the church and the Vatican especially uh, take this um, this stance, which seems archaic to us, like civil unions, really? That's your, wow, way to be progressive. It's huge. But right. it's such a big deal for the Vatican to do this. And so it's, it's, um, it's a step, uh, I think. It is a step. I just worry the flip-flopping, and we've seen it, I mean, we even see it in the Mormon religion here where the church is like, we need to protect our LGBTQ, you know, youth, but don't act on it. It's just very weird, and I feel like there's some of that um, with, uh, but thank God, Pope Francis, and he definitely is more... uh, He's more chill, Pope. Evolved. He's way more chill than his predecessor. Yeah. Oh, this next one, let's just kick it off. Let's just kick it off. Everyone's been talking about it, AG. <laughs> a message to you, Take Rudy. it. Take it. So just a week, one week after news broke that the White House was once warned of Russian intelligence uh, operatives targeting Rudy Giuliani, we learn the full details uh, of another time the former New York mayor and President Trump's personal attorney was duped. Womp womp. In the upcoming Borat subsequent movie film, <laughs> by the way... If if you if you had told me that I would be able to love Sasha Baron Cohen more, I would not have believed you. But it yeah. it is happening. Um, Borat subsequent movie film, a surprise sequel to the 2006 hit. The actress playing Borat's daughter poses as a television journalist and interviews Giuliani in a hotel by themselves about the administration's coronavirus response. She invites him to join her for a drink afterward, and and he accepts. Okay, step one. Uh, and once she removes his microphone he lies down on the bed and sticks his hands down his pants (laughs) i'm sorry i really tried i just keep picturing his tweet saying i was tucking in my shirt i've nothing happened i was tucking in my shirt listen Listen. i know sometimes women (laughs) lay lay on their backs to button their skinny jeans because we need to do that but there's no way in hell that Rudy needs to lie on his back to tuck in his shirt. Not to mention, jacket's closed. His jacket looks completely closed in this picture. His hands all the way down his pants. How long are the tails on your shirt, Rudy? Come on. <laughs> yeah, so Rudy's tweeted uh, because, you know, he's so smart. He says, one, one, the Borat video is a complete fabrication. I was tucking in my shirt after taking off the recording equipment. At no time before, during, or after the interview was I ever inappropriate. If Sasha Baron Cohen implies otherwise, he is a stone-cold liar. In fact, the New York Post today reports, the New York Post, that's his Russian disinformation shuttle, 
um, reports, it looks to me like an exaggeration through editing. Why, thanks, newsroom at the New York Post. See, you got you got moxie. <laughs> as soon as I realized, he said, it was a setup, I called the police, which has been noted in the THR article uh, on July 8th. This is an effort to blunt my relentless exposure of the criminality and depravity of Joe Biden and his entire family. Deadline Hollywood reports CAA had a distribution screening in September where there was no mention of the scene holding any importance. Four, we are preparing a much bigger, much bigger dumps of the hard drive from hell, which Joe Biden will be unable to defend or hide from. I have the receipts. He fails to mention the receipts that he has are fabricated, but he has the receipts. I think it's what you were talking about. Was it yesterday on the podcast mm-hmm. where he's going to start making up, you know, uh, arrests? Mm. But like pedophile rings in the Ukraine arrest. This is all the shit that I think you were talking about. Yep. And I put it out there. I hope it gets more uh, exposure so that not, do I have to use the word exposure? I hope it gets more traction so that people can, uh, <laughs> can know. I love that he's like, I'm tucking in my shirt. It looks like he's looking for Hunter Biden's cell phone. Mm. Like his hand is that far down his pants. Now I tweeted. Your tweet was beautiful. Beautiful. I'm, you know, I'm, tr- I'm trying to sympathize here. I say not too many people know this, but my entertainment writer says that when I appear on TV or in a documentary, my lav mic must be put down the front of my pants uh, instead of the back there. And I can only remove it while laying down on a bed alone in a room with an underage member of the opposite sex. Totally normal. Uh, it's in my writer. And now... Lincoln's Bible says no one knows this, but my entertainment writer says when I show up on set, there must be a blind computer store owner who accepts a laptop given to me by some dirty spies with offshore LLCs (laughs) run by George Nader. This is normal Hollywood stuff. (laughs) So if you would like to add on to, you know, our little uh, tweet tree about your entertainment writers and and what's required of you when you appear on television, feel free. You can find that on Twitter at Mueller. She wrote. We're having a good time with it. Oh, man. Good times. <laughs> this is so like Dershowitz. Okay. Well, finally, <sighs> I have a new report. And this is, uh, um, we talked about this early in the show, from NBC. Lawyers appointed by the federal judge to identify migrant families who were separated by the Trump administration say they have yet to track down the parents of 545 children. And that about two-thirds of those parents were deported to Central America without their children. And that's according to a filing Tuesday from the ACLU. And I'll speak with MSNBC justice and security analyst and former DOJ public relations uh, spokesman Matthew Miller after this break. So stay with us. After these messages, we'll be right back. Hey, everybody, it's AG for The Daily Beans. If you've been listening to the podcast for a while, you know about the podcasts, Bruce Willis and Boobs, and you know I would do anything for them. But as much as I love them, I'm not fond of their stinky litter. Everything from cleaning it to covering it up and the smell is constant. It's just it doesn't end. And that's why I use Pretty Litter. Pretty Litter is kitty litter reinvented. Unlike traditional litter, Pretty Litter's super light crystals trap odor and release moisture, resulting in dry, low-maintenance litter. That's the best part, low-maintenance. And it doesn't smell. You cannot smell it. And Pretty Litter is virtually dust-free because it's manufactured with specialized de-dusting processes, so less dust, no fuss. And Pretty Litter arrives safely at my door in a small, lightweight bag, lasts up to a month. Now I get litter bags auto-shipped, and I don't have to deal with last-minute trips to the store. And shipping is free. But above all else, here's why Pretty Litter is my 
Hero. It's a health indicator. It monitors the cat's health by changing colors when it detects potential underlying issues. And you won't find that kind of innovation in conventional litter. So now the podcasts will have the best litter ever, and I can have some peace of mind. So get the world's smartest litter without leaving home by visiting prettylitter.com and using promo code DAILYBEANS for 20% off your first order. That's prettylitter.com, promo code DAILYBEANS for 20% off. prettylitter.com and use promo code DAILYBEANS. All right, everybody, welcome back. Joining me today to discuss this absolutely disturbing story about the the 500, 545 migrant children who, whose parents cannot be found and how this kind, this whole thing sort of started and where the missing inspector general report is, is uh, a former DOJ spokesperson, MSNBC security analyst and, and justice correspondent. Uh, please welcome Matthew Miller. Matthew, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Uh, I'm good. I'm really... Um, I'm being who I'm just the anxiety getting so close to the election. I'm just like burning the (laughs) candle at both ends right now, but I'm good. Yeah. Um, Friday will be 11 days to to the election, which is, um, you know, when four years ago, Jim Comey made his big move. So we're not out of the woods yet. Yeah. One Scaramucci, um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. as we say in the business, whatever business that is, the Scaramucci business. Um, (laughs) I wanted to talk to you today. Uh, because I, you had tweeted a little bit about uh, Bash, who I think is now the former U.S. attorney in El Paso, and uh, his involvement in this zero-tolerance policy or the implementation of it. And also, kind because of, recently we found out through some leaked bits of the Inspector General report, which we still have not seen and DHS has been sitting on, uh, that... Rod Rosenstein had a, a hand in creating this zero tolerance policy of separating people as young as you know infants uh, from their families, and and now we're finding that about five hundred and forty five um, children we we are unable to locate their parents, according to lawyers who are working on their cases. So tell us a little bit about who Bash is and where he was in proximity to this whole. There was a pilot program uh, in in El Paso. Yeah, I think that's the important thing to remember, which I, I, I often forget, and a lot of people often forget, that there were really two se- family separation programs. There was a first a pilot program in uh, west the western district of Texas, mainly El Paso and other border regions along the, the Rio Grande in Texas, uh, in 2017 that the administration never announced. They just started doing it. No one knew they were doing it at the time. Lawyers only found out much later. And then there was – and that ended in – November of 2017. And then there was the program that they announced in 2018 that caused the big uproar uh, and, and you know, led to, to, you know, lots of lawsuits and eventually was rolled back by the president after much criticism. Um, the report that we got this week was, at, at, you know, when NBC reported that actually uh, under the first program, 545 children uh, who were separated from their families have never been reunited. Um, which, uh, as bad as the second program was, at least the vast majority of the children seem to have eventually made it back to their parents. We don't know how many didn't, but w- when that program ended, most of the parents were still in custody, uh, so they could be some, you know, somewhat easily reunited. Um, uh, with the first program, uh, most of the parents were deported, and so by the, you know, the the kids were at, you know, various. Uh, houses or other detention facilities in the U.S. and the kids have been deported back to their home or the parents have been deported back to their home countries. The government never made any effort to reunite these kids. Private lawyers have been trying to do it. And still now 
three years after the fact, 545 kids are just orphaned, cannot cannot find their their families. It's it's a tragedy. And the the with respect to John Bash, he was the U.S. attorney for the Western District of Texas, uh, a Bush a, a, a Trump appointee. He w- was in the Justice Department, and then when Trump was elected, um, uh, moved over to the White House Counsel's Office. He's a Federalist Society member. His wife is a Federalist Society member. He's just one of those kind of that little cult of Republican lawyers that have have uh, come to dominate the Republican legal world. He wasn't there during the pilot program, but at, at he came into office in December, right after it ended. And when the Justice Department was designing the full program that they implemented in 2018, they asked his office for advice because it was his office that had designed this pilot program. And career prosecutors in his office wrote uh, a memo to him um, recommending that no children under 12 be separated from their parents because in their experience, those children, and this should be obvious, were too young to find their way back to their parents on their own. I mean, I don't know that a tw- how a 12 or 13-year-old could necessarily do it anyway, e- either, but obviously a kid of eight or five or two can't do it on, on their own. And uh, John Bash sat on that memo, never sent it to Rod Rosenstein, never sent it to Jeff Sessions. I doubt it would have had any impact anyway, um, but just didn't do anything, just sat on the recommendation, I suspect, because he didn't want to earn the... Uh, enmity of his uh, conservative Republican bosses. He probably wants to go a long way in Republican politics. And and I think the lesson is, to wrap up a very long answer, there are people all over the Justice Department who touched this policy and had a role in family separation. And we don't know who all of them are yet. And we need to know. Yeah. And I have to ask, like, Bash was at the White House um, when, when the pilot program was going on. There was some resistance from the folks in the Eastern District of Tex- Texas. Why was Bash then sent as the U.S. attorney to the Eastern District of Texas? You know, it's it seems, uh, you know, I'd be interested to find out a follow up if any of the people who objected to that policy to him in that memo still worked there uh, and, or what policies, you know, I mean, it just seemed like a... It seemed like a really interesting appointment, uh, to say the least. And then we we also know the name Bash from him being hand selected by the Department of Justice to look into the you know the great unmasking scandal of you know whatever, which you know as you and I know they've turned up nothing. Um, so we also have that, and that was along the lines of kind of how Durham, as a U.S. attorney, was looking into you know specifically the. Um, the investigation, the oranges of the Russia investigation. And then they had another U.S. attorney, uh, Jensen from Missouri, looking into the Flynn situation. And I like they just had all these little handpicked douchebags running around trying to make uh, make crimes where they didn't exist. Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, there there are 93 U.S. attorneys around the country and they're both their with any group of 93, the quality varies among them. And with this group of 93, um, the political hackishness varies among them. Uh, there are some of the U.S. attorneys who are just kind of career prosecutors who, uh, for some reason, the other sessions appoint, you know, got the president to agree to appoint as U.S. attorney, surprisingly. 
And then there are others who come out of the conservative legal world and are um, uh, much more out of the mainstream of Republican politics, which is now the mainstream of Republican politics is kind of the fringe of U.S. politics. Um, and John Bash definitely comes from that world. As I said, he's a, a Federalist Society member going all the way back to, to Harvard, Harvard Law School. Um, uh, it's kind of steeped in Republican Party politics. And the, the the point of this is you have seen Barr give special assignments to those people who he thought was were loyal to him and would come up with outcomes that he wanted. And so that's why you saw him trying to take away for trying trying to take the U.S. attorney in New Jersey and make him the acting U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York when he was trying to push Berman out. Mm. Uh, that failed, of course, but he was trying to put a U.S. attorney who he thought was more loyal to him and would be more compliant. And I do think it says something that as loyal as Bash was seen to be to to Barr and as much of a kind of Republican Party operative as he's been seen to be, he still couldn't come up with anything useful in the unmasking investigation. It does tell you something about how how silly and far-fetched and absurd that investigation was from the beginning, that even this U.S. attorney working for this attorney general not only couldn't come up with a crime because there was never going to be a crime, but even couldn't come up with something useful to turn into a report that would be Fox News chum for the evening. I mean, there's a very low bar for that kind of that kind of report. And they couldn't even come up with that. Yeah. And then in the whole Durham thing, the only thing they've been able to come up with is the Kleinsmith uh, email from Inspector General report looking into the Carter Page FISA, which had no bearing on anything in the Russia investigation anyway, much like Carter Page is with the rest of his life. He's just not important. Um but I, I thought it was hilarious that they, they the, all they did was draw attention to the fact that Flynn showed up on the phone line of 14 enemies that we were surveilling. At, you know, <laughs> I, like that's all you've told us that we didn't know already. Thanks for that information. Like, oh, OK. And, and one of them was not the Kislyak calls. So it's just, it, it, it absolutely blows my mind that they just keep shooting themselves in the foot. Um, back to the Inspector General report that we have not seen yet from DHS. We've got a lot of alarming things coming out of DHS, including the fact that the director and the deputy director aren't even legally there right now, and uh, that their intelligence, um, head of intelligence is a, is a whistleblower, and they've been hiding Russia, you know, Russia information. They've been sort of suppressing it and all that other stuff. Uh, so I just, you know, I, I find it, uh, it, with this, with this, with these new reports, especially about these, these migrant children, it just absolutely uh, blows my mind. And I think the inspector general of DHS is this report that we're waiting for. Is it not? There's a D there is a DHS investigation. There's also a DOJ investi uh, inspector general investigation, uh, that will, and they will look at different things. Obviously the D DHS will look at, um, the role of, of, you know, um, secretary Nielsen and people at, at the home at the department of Homeland security and the DOJ report will look at sessions and Ro and Rosenstein. Oh, okay. So when we got the Rosenstein news, that was from that Horowitz's, was, that was from Horowitz. And I, I, I am especially interested in the DOJ one because, Look, a lot of people, you know, Kirsten Nielsen has taken the public fall for the family separation program. Appropriately so. I think everyone involved should have taken the fall. But she shouldn't be the only one. You know, Jeff Sessions was as just as much an, an architect of it as she was, um, maybe even more so. Um, it, it, you know, one of the things that's come out, she initially was opposed to it. I don't think that excuses her since she signed off on it and went forward with it anyway. Um but there is a, there is something in the legal community. There is a kind of of clubbiness that I think um, 
really means that people are going to walk away from the Justice Department and there's a chance they're going to walk away without any consequences. They're going to land at big, um, uh, cushy law firm jobs. Rod Rosenstein has already done that. I think John Bash has one lined up. He left for a private sector job that's not yet been disclosed, but I've been told it's a, a cushy law firm job. And there's this, there's this, this club of lawyers that look out for each other. And I want to see this in Je- Inspector General report because I, I think if we are ever going to, if there's going to be any accountability for what happened, it, it's going to have to. You know, there's not going to be legal accountability. What they did wasn't against the law, but there ought to be some social accountability. You shouldn't be able to 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 orphan children and separate kids from their family and, and inflict cruelty on them that some of them may never recover from, and then go you know take a a, a job representing big companies like nothing ever happened. Like you have uh, no culpability for what you did. And I'm hopeful that when the DOJ report comes out, it will be shameful enough that maybe a few of the people who are thinking about hiring these DOJ lawyers, which um, I hope will all be out of jobs on January 20th, um, that it'll give them pause and make Mm. them think twice. Yeah. And added benefit, it being Horowitz, who is the one who exposed the FISA warrant issues uh, in the, you know, the Klein-Smith um, Carter Page debacle. Uh, it's hard for Trump to denounce that particular inspector general since he uses his work all the time. Uh, theoretically, although consistency has never been uh, one, one, of his, <laughs> one, one of the traits he's, you know, clung to. <laughs> yeah, I just I, I it, he has a little bit of a harder time uh, yes. trying to discredit this particular inspector general, pretty much the only one he's not fired. Right. Yeah, that's true. Well, uh, I look forward to seeing that IG report, too. I, I, Although not also at the same time, I hate to speculate what's in it, you know? Yeah. And the shame is we're not going to see it until after the election. I think it's pretty clear that, the, you know, that the leadership at DOJ can delay these things by taking their time to get there. They get to, to submit complaints and answers and and um, responses. And it's pretty clear to me they're slow walking their side of this to try to stretch the the release of the report until after the election, which is a shame. Um, but at least we'll get to see it at some point. Yeah, 100 percent. And I mean, we still haven't even seen the friggin New York FBI field office inspector general findings that were due <laughs> right. out almost two years ago. So, um, yeah, they I think they just slow walk what they don't want us to know. That is I think that's right. All right. Well, hey, it's been really great uh, talking to you again. A, f- a former spokesman for for the Department of Justice, which this this is what kind of really has to, if I were you, be like, I would just be so, it would be so maddening having been a former <laughs> spokesman for the Department of Justice in these times. Um, and uh, MSNBC Justice and Security Analyst, Matthew Miller, thanks for spending some time with me today. I appreciate it. Allison, always enjoy it. Thank you. Everybody stick around. We'll be right back with the good news. Hey, everybody, it's AG for The Daily Beans, and this segment of the podcast is brought to you by The New Yorker. I've been a huge fan of The New Yorker forever. I remember picking up my first copy and being drawn in by the art and design and the cartoons, and I'm so proud to have their support for the pod. They've always been the best of the best, in print and online. The New Yorker stands apart for its commitment to truth and accuracy, quality writing, and compelling reporting and storytelling. I remember those things, truth and accuracy, (laughs) and The New Yorker is considered by many to be one of the most influential publications in the world. Their weekly print issues and daily online articles 
articles cover a wide range of topics, and there's something for everyone. You politics and news, international affairs, climate change and the environment, pop culture, the arts, fiction, food, humor, and of course, the cartoons. The New Yorker has become the daily digital destination for news and cultural coverage. They publish 10 to 15 exclusive site-only stories every day. In addition to that, you can use the apps, read from the online archive going all the way back to 1925, solve the crossword puzzles, and more. In both print and online digital issues, The New Yorker has content from the best writers in America. Some of my favorite include Emily Nussbaum, who won the Pulitzer, and of course, uh, Doreen St. Felix, one of my favorite, covers the highs and lows of today's culture, and she won the Ellie Award for columns and commentary in 2019. A 12-week subscription is just $6, and it includes home delivery of the print edition each week and unlimited access to the New Yorker website. That is 50% off for the listeners. For a limited time, you can get the 12 weeks for the New Yorker for just $6. That's an average savings of 50%. Plus, listeners of the show will receive an exclusive tote bag for free. So go to newyorker.com slash dailybeans. That's N-E-W-Y-O-R-K-E-R.com slash dailybeans to get 12 weeks of the New Yorker for just $6 and a free tote bag. newyorker.com slash dailybeans. All right, everybody, welcome back. It's time to flip it blue. And joining me today, we're doing a follow-up Flip It Blue segment with uh, the sole Democratic, well, the candidate, the Democratic candidate for the sole congressional representative seat uh, in Wyoming, Lynette Grable. Lynette, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me again. I wanted to bring you back on because there was recently a debate between you and your opponent, Liz Cheney. We all know Liz. Um, she's very special. And uh, she... <laughs> She's been there. How long has she been there now? 2017? Four years. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And we are working very hard to unseat her. And I wanted to talk a little bit about some of these standout moments in the debate that you had with her. And there was uh, no live audience at this debate. Uh, the Wyoming at Large U.S. House debate it was on October 8th at Eastern Wyoming College in Torrington, Wyoming. And there was uh, Liz Cheney and you and Jeff Haggett running over the Constitution Party. But he wasn't really he was kind of a non-entity at that debate. Um, and f first, I'd like to talk about when Liz Cheney trotted out the old Democrats want to defund the police trope. Um, when Cheney herself voted against the Violence Against Women's Reauthorization Act of 2019, and I wanted to ask you what you thought about about her saying that Democrats want to defund the police and what your response to that was. Yeah. You know, she she kind of um, did the blanket messaging that Republicans often do um, when they're talking about Black Lives Matter and rallies and marches. You know, she went to stating they're, they're rioters, they're thugs, they're looters, you know, and so. I, I was glad that she went first because my I was asked I spoke and asked after her and I just stated you know why are we not more concerned why the American people especially people of color are marching or rallying and in the streets across our country um, about an issue that obviously is is impacting them so you know my kind of rebuttal was. We, we should, as leaders of, of any form, should be willing to uh, work to understand and work to bring 
uh, my quote was work, work to bring a solution to their cries. Um, I think that most of the debate, I geared the conversation back to, we need to get back to bipartisanship. We need to get back to working collectively together. Um, and so I think that debunked a lot of her go-to, uh, I don't know, rebuttals or phrases, um, because it seems like Republicans say the same thing, um, and they, they take on this, you know, uh, rhetoric, and they keep pushing it to collectively together. Uh, we're not really trying to understand the issue and working to try to understand the American people. So my responses and, and the things that I state was gearing towards right back to the people, because for anybody in Washington, D.C., like policies and issues that arise throughout our country, it should always go back to the people and the community. Um, and I think that I was able to kind of, um, you know, remove that 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 type of statements that she was trying to go to but then towards the end of the de debate she was she was moving towards you know yes we you know we, we should be working together and things of that nature so I, I there was a there was a there was a, a a place in that debate where I felt like I impacted her tremendously that's <laughs> that's uh, about as much as we can ask for, you know, uh, when it comes to when it comes to Liz Cheney. But it, it seems, you know, it seems like with the cries where they want to defund the police, look at the mass chaos on the streets. They all seem to forget that Trump is in the White House right now. And and they seem to be wanting to blame Joe Biden for this ginned up kind of false narrative that there's all this violence in the streets. And, and he's not the president right now. So I just don't understand. I, I guess they don't have anything else. Right. <laughs> That's exactly, that's exactly true. And then also with the BAWA Act, we all know that Representative Liz Cheney, you know, she, she voted against it. Um, I made a powerful statement on, especially when it comes to uh, Native American women um, being the most stalked, raped, and sexually assaulted and suffered domestic violence 50 times higher than the national average. Um, and then the crime rate that we face uh, across the nation, you know, I expounded on the Violence Against Women Act. Um, and I could tell you right when the debate was over, she came up to me afterwards and she asked to meet with me to talk about the VAWA Act. Oh, that's interesting. Um, hmm. Yeah. It, it, so it appears that she wasn't aware of, of those statistics. Yeah, I, I think overall, um, you know, I don't think she's really connected to the people in Wyoming or, you know, in the community, um, you know, how we were impacted by COVID um, when that when that was on the rise and we're, we're facing another rise here now. But, you know, I, I talked a lot about the community. I talked about a lot about what I've done throughout the communities in the state of Wyoming. Um, and I, I think she just was really disconnected. Um, she had a statement on COVID um, and she didn't know that for us here at the Wind River Reservation that, when our uh, tribal members were going into town, the nearby town to the, the emergency center, they were turned away. So she didn't was unaware of all these things that I mentioned during the debate. Um, and I think she could do a lot better on paying attention to Wyoming. But if you don't live in Wyoming, it's probably hard to understand what we face here. If you don't live in Wyoming, you probably shouldn't represent it. But maybe that's just me. Um, speaking of COVID... Uh, that we know from public reporting that a memo was sent out to all Republican candidates from this administration to blame the Chinese 
for COVID and to not focus at all on on President Trump. And true to form, following the uh, instructions in that memo for how to campaign when asked about COVID, Liz Cheney referred to it as the Chinese as a virus sent here by the Chinese Communist Party. And she, again, failed to recognize the failures and shortcomings of the current administration. I mean, that was it seemed plainly obvious. Yeah, she did. She mentioned that the oh man, I was just so disheartened when she said that, uh, you know, it's it's unfair to blame um, China or just any person of Asian descent um, on on a virus um, in a pandemic. Um, I think they're deflecting by doing this. They're deflecting the issue and accountability of what could have been done better to save the American people. Um, I, ob- I, I absolutely believe that we, we could have done a lot more um, and a lot of lives could have been saved if we, uh, the, the current Trump administration, took forward to make assertments uh, to ensure that we are safe, our country is safe, and that we are on lockdown. But he continued to do uh, as we all know, he continued to, you know, state that everything is fine and everything's OK. Um, and he's still saying that. And here we're, we're, our numbers are still rising. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, uh, Clyburn recently released um, White House task force reports on coronavirus showing that 31 states were in the red zone and that it's really bad. And those reports were, were kept hidden from the American public. And we already know that uh, this administration has downplayed the seriousness of, of COVID, uh, basically, you know, promoting herd immunity and saying, ah, just let it rip through the country. Ah, two to four million people will die, whatever. We're, we're in a war and uh, we just have to make sure that the economy keeps going. So this it all stands to reason that she has these these talking points. Um, I thought it was very interesting when there was a, a point when uh, you were given a chance to engage each other directly. And you asked Cheney if Native Americans are included in the Western way of life. And that was in response to her remarks uh, after U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service were forced by court order to revise the list of endangered and threatened wildlife under the Endangered Species Act to relist grizzly bears in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. And Cheney said that was the result of excessive litigation pursued by radical environmentalists who are intent on destroying our Western way of life. And you asked if Native Americans were included in that. How did that go? Yeah, you know what? I was so glad um, that I was called to do the first question. Um, You know, last year, I I testified in Congress uh, to protect the grizzly bears. Um, And then it it was collectively tribes who sued uh, to win that um, the, uh, the the case of delisting the grizzly bears, and so right after the tribe had won that case, she made that statement, and so she went to a you know radical environmentalist. Um, no, it's not radical environmentalist. These are Native American tribes. That, you know, again, a disconnect, right? She had a disconnect of understanding who was the one who was trying to protect the grizzly bears, um, which were Native Americans um, ex- experts and including myself. Um, and so th- that statement I, I took personal. Um, so I was elated to have the opportunity to ask her to say, hey, you know, in your Western way of life, which, you know, when she made that statement, I, I thought about manifest destiny. I thought about all <laughs> kinds of other things, but there's atrocities. Mm. You know, there were so many wrongs in that statement. And I, again, I think she was just so she just so far disconnected to the people that she didn't even understand those words she was saying. So that's why I took the opportunity to ask her, you know, hey, you made that statement, you know, that we're ruining your Western way of life. 
you know, I was the one who testified um, in that case and to Congress, you know, are Native Americans included in that, you know, and I, I think she had, she was a little set back with that question. Um, my, my question did, didn't get answered. Um, and so, yes, she is, um, and she, this quite recently, she called for the Department of Justice to investigate into Russia and China uh, funding uh, environmentalists or conservation uh, candidates uh, to, you know, in, into the uh, the campaigns right now. That's ludicrous. You know, there's there's no involvement of, of funding coming from Russia or China uh, to candidates who who wants to protect the earth. Um, I think that's an, another insane rhetoric that that they're trying to push out. Just because we want to protect the earth and the water doesn't mean that we're trying to uh, we're, we're getting money from from overseas. Well, it's sort of projection since Trump is supported by money from Russia and China. And we just found out from The New York Times he's got a secret Chinese bank account and uh, that, that he didn't disclose and pays, uh, you know, two hundred thousand dollars in taxes there when he pays no taxes here. Uh, so it's just interesting that that she would use those two countries as an example uh, and, and you're right. She didn't answer the question. She'd sort of dropped the Western way of life trope, which you're right. That's that's a that's just like turning the knife. You know what I mean? Just um, right. Like, did you forget who you were debating today, Liz? Like, hi. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> um, just absolutely stunning non-answer uh, from Liz Cheney. And then when she had a when she had a question, she went towards Haggett. So. At that moment, I, I knew she didn't want to have any other oh. discussions with myself. <laughs> right. Well, you know, you don't you you don't uh, fit into her Western way of answering questions, I guess. Right. <laughs> now, some other uh, notable Liz Cheney votes here, because you you brought up WAVA, you brought up the uh, or VAWA, the Violence Against Women's Act, a uh, Violence Against Women Act, and her no vote on that. She's also voted no on the Equality Act. Uh, the Paycheck Fairness Act, the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act, and uh, HR 986, Protecting Americans with Pre-existing Conditions Act of 2019. She voted no on all of those, and that is just antithetical to representing any group of Americans anywhere. But but it also is is it's it's more hard hitting in Wyoming. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, I'm 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 a woman professional, so I, I understand the importance of the, of the Paycheck Fairness Act. Um, and as her as a woman in leadership, I think she would also try to understand that. But she doesn't. You know, she comes from elite background. She probably never had to be in a position where she was at a job and a, a male worker was was making more than her that has the same title or, or status. Um, um, job status within that company. She probably never had to face that. Um, so yeah, I, I, I think she failed women everywhere across the country um, and voting against the Paycheck Fairness Act because the Paycheck Fairness Act goes a long way on protecting, um, <clears throat> on protecting, um, um, making sure that there's ec- equitable uh, salaries and, and, and fairness across the board when it comes to male versus women. Um, and so, and also with the other bills that she didn't, she voted against, you know, with that bill, with the pre-existing conditions, you know, this is something that I always say, you know, moving forward in 2021, um, and we have a lot of different candidates and we have both Republicans and some, even some Democrats that want to move to another healthcare system. We have to keep in mind that the, the great thing about the Affordable Cares Act, and I think we can make it better. There, there is some kinks there. There is some downfalls there. And I, I will admit that. But we have to remember that 
it went a long way in helping people with pre-existing conditions. So for the Americans who had come down with COVID and survived and recovered, those Americans are now are labeled a pre-existing condition because they recovered from COVID. So that's something that I think we have to think about when we're looking at a new healthcare system, because um, um, we have a whole, you know, we have hundreds of thousands of more people uh, or with it over, I don't know how what the number is, but the, it's, it's a good sized number of Americans who recovered from COVID, but now these people have a pre-existing condition. So we have to think about that when we talk about our healthcare system. Um, I think her, the way she votes on bills just overall, um, it's the bills that she votes against, like the VAWA Act, the Paycheck Fairness Act, the Equality Act. I mean, these bills go a long way for not only working class Americans, such as myself, but also people of color. Um, and I just wonder why does she always vote against these things that would actually help the American people and would actually promote equality and fairness and justice. I, I, I think of people who want to pursue Senate or Congress, they have a, a heart and morality to be uh, fair and to uh, want to imply justice. Um, this, this is how I think. So why is she not, you know, thinking of the overall American people when she votes on these bills? I think she 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 votes on the side of uh, just the elite, the one percent. Um, and, and if it doesn't benefit the one percent, then she votes against it, because that's how I look at her voting record. Yeah. I, I mean, you we like like Maddow says, watch what they do, not what they say. And she doesn't vote to right. represent the constituents of Wyoming. She votes to represent special interest and um, and big money and corporations and what the Republicans and the administration pretty much installed her there to do. Right. Well, Lynette, can you tell listeners where they can uh, support your campaign again and, and uh, volunteer, write postcards, text bank, phone bank, contribute? Where, where, can, where can they go? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm on social media, so I'm on Twitter. Um, I'm also on um, Instagram and Facebook at uh, Grable, uh, um, Grable for Congress and Grable for why uh, Wyoming um, on um, Facebook. Um, and then you can also just go to my, my um, website. It's grableforwhy.com. Um, I've been inundated by people across the nation uh, and even just the state of Wyoming. Um, but I, I have gained a lot of support um, um, throughout this race. And I'm so thankful for every single one of them, everybody who contributed. I think we've gotten all states to basically all states except two states to donate to my campaign. Um, and I think that says a lot. Um, and also, uh, I have Republicans in the state of Wyoming that have reached out to me to say that they're going to support me. And we continue to get those messages and those letters. Um, so, you know, I'm obviously I'm the underdog. Uh, but I'm the person who's actually for the people who want to represent not only women, but also represent fairness. Um, and I don't think I don't think we have that in Washington, D.C. And so and also the working class. But, yes, go to grableforwhy.com. Um, please, you know, reach out. We would love to talk with you more. Um, I love connecting with people. And I I I. I individually respond to everybody who reaches out to the campaign. So thank you. Oh, that's awesome. And it's Grable, G-R-E-Y-B-U-L-L? Yep, for, for, for Y. Awesome. Thank you so much for taking the time today. Great debate. Uh, I appreciate everything that you said and everything that you stand for. And, and we'll see if we can flip this blue. Thanks so much, Lynette Grable. I appreciate your time. You too. Have a good day. Hey, Daily Beans listeners, it's AG. One unexpected side effect of this year 
fashion, fast fashion has gone away. I have no idea what the trends are. It's like social distancing with fashion. Um, so here's what I do. Don't buy for now, buy forever. So for timeless pieces that will last a lifetime and you can wear them forever, check out Fairty. Fairty makes high quality, comfortable clothing for life. They're sustainably minded, designing products with a thoughtful focus on fabric, and every piece is made to last a lifetime, guaranteed, as a matter of fact. Fairty is committed to the community and the environment in everything that they do. They regularly donate to the Surfrider Foundation, which I love, and 1% for the Planet, which is an incredible organization. The company is run by the Fairty family, and they're very hands-on in ensuring everything they do lives up to their values. I love the women's clothes from Fairty. I describe their style as casual and elegant. Some of my favorite pieces right now are the Paloma Duster cardigan, the cream-colored Ashbury Sherpa jacket, and the Kai Cashmere sweater. So check out their website. Their clothes are gorgeous. And buying forever is the smartest way to shop, and now's the smartest time to do it. Right now, you can get 25% off your next Faherty purchase when you go to faherdybrand.com slash beans. That's Faherty, F-A-H-E-R-T-Y, brand.com slash beans for 25% off. Faherdybrand.com slash beans. All right, everybody, welcome back. It's time for the good news. Well, we're I'm so excited about this. So am I. And it's just, it's always the best part of every day. I know we say it every day, but I mean it every day. So I'm going to say it every day. Say it every day. We're going to say it every day. (laughs) All the days that end in Y, the good news is the best part of the day. (laughs) It is. And a first step. And I know we had a little bit of good news early on in the show, but our listener submitted good news. Uh, It's just so incredible. If you have good news, personal or political or a correction or a confession, send it in. You can find our contact information at dailybeanspod.com and click on contact. Ooh, I was Ira Glass right there. You can find the information on dailybeanspod.com and click on contact. All right. So first up from anonymous, pronouns she and her. First of all, I want to thank you for this podcast. Your community, your commentary helps me wade through the bullshit every day. I've also learned so much from you and your guests. I love it when the beans and your fantasy indictment come true. I live in northern Nevada, but grew up in Salt Lake City, Utah. Ooh, SLC punk. Uh, My father's side of the family is active in the Mormon church. My immediate family is not Mormon. My dad fell away from the Mormon church when he was in high school. My first cousin on my father's side contacted me to find out what I thought about Biden and Harris. She asked my opinions on different issues. She voted third party in 2016, but was considering voting for Biden and Harris. She said, I'd have um, hell to pay if I voted for Biden and would probably be disowned by my family. I'm only half kidding. Since that conversation, she has posted articles on Facebook about why people should vote for Biden. She has posted items from a Mormons for Biden Facebook page. Nice. Wow. Other members of our family and many of her friends make derogatory comments on these posts, but she always answers them politely and keeps on posting. It makes me happy that I have influenced her to vote for Biden. That's so cool. It is fantastic, especially in... Mormon country, especially there. Mm -hmm. And I just, I love the idea that that because like every single Mormon I know is just the super nicest person on the planet, that those discussions are going to be very different from the ones that I have on Facebook (laughs) with my recovering Catholics. (laughs) They're probably just the kindest, you know, discussion. They probably feel very Canadian. Like I'm sure a Mormon argument is, sounds like you're arguing with a Canadian. Like they'll apologize for their stance, but they'll have it. Yeah. And I see your point. And have you thought of this, you know, just very, huh, hmm. 
Okay, yeah. cool. <laughs> All right, this one's from Katie, pronouns she and her. Hey guys, I live in a really red area of North Carolina. We moved here from the Charlotte area about a year ago. In late September, after seeing what Facebook friends were posting and just the election in general, I started getting depressed. I usually listen to Daily Beans and some of the crooked media pods as soon as I can, but I found myself putting them off. Anyway, I decided about two weeks ago to stop wallowing and do something. So I contacted a friend who works in the political spectrum in D.C., and she got me in contact with the North Carolina Dems so I could volunteer with her text banking. So far, I've done four text banking shifts and gotten overwhelmingly positive responses. That's awesome. Yes. Also, after years of saying he wouldn't vote in another election until Congress enacted term limits, my dad registered to vote and voted in his first primary in the spring. And I found out he and my mom, who voted third party in 16, voted for Biden and Friday, the second of the day of early voting. Wow, that's awesome. They already voted in early voting. I love that how many third party voters are coming back over. Uh, my husband and I just received our mail-in ballots, and this will be the first time my husband will vote in a presidential election. Needless to say, I'm beginning to feel a little better. We have work to do. Also, I've attached some pics of pod pets and some quarantine pod chickens. Now, listen, everyone. You've got to go look at this picture. These are called, and I know this because I'm in love with them. They're called Silky Chickens. S-I-L-K-I-E. Silky Chickens. Look it up right after this podcast. They're the cutest fucking things you'll ever see. Mm -hmm. You won't eat another chicken. You just won't eat chickens anymore because they're the cutest things you'll ever Mm -hmm. see. I have a chicken calendar and and this month happens to be Silky Chicken Month. And, you know, our our friend of the pod who's been on a few times, former U.S. attorney Joyce Vance, she has Silky Chickens as well. Oh, my God. I didn't realize, like, I knew that people had them. I just never, like, seen someone who had them. I feel so... And can we get... We need to continue talking about the pictures (laughs) of these dogs. I wish everyone could see this. I hate that this is, you know, that some, I don't hate that this is a podcast, but sometimes I'm just like, I wish you could see what I was, I'm seeing right now. That's why you, if you're, you have to become a patron so you can get the newsletter and see these. They're so incredible. This dog has a blue Zorro mask is the best I can describe. Oh my God. Little yellow cape. Super dog. And he's a little, yeah, big dog too. And then there's a Dalmatian just looking like, you know, questing just deep in thought and then this ca- and then the last picture is i can only assume a shepherd healer is the thing it's a, bu- a blue healer oh. mix that dog is one beautiful and two i'm gonna assume laughing even though it's yawning but we're gonna say it's laughing <laughs> and it looks like a, an adorable child is holding the dog and there's also a tuxy kitty oh thank you for the pod pet photos i appreciate so good uh next up oh correction <gasps> woo from andrew thank you andrew for corrections pronouns he and him in an otherwise excellent episode dr atlas shrugged you had a confession from an australian rugby player and you referred to him as an aussie and pronounced it aussie did you know it's pronounced aussie with a hard z like in buzz or fuzz uh like how you would pronounce ozzy osborne Americans do it with soft S like sassy or Mississippi, and that's just wrong. <laughs> but if that's all I have to put up with, I'm having a good day. Ta for all you do. I didn't. I Aussie because I had an Aussie dog, an Australian shepherd. And so they, yeah. we call them Aussies. Uh, and same with uh, the folks. Who, Aussie. Okay. Didn't know. Now I know. Now you know. Thank you. Together, I've said, Dana, amongst us, the entire community of us and, our, and the listeners here, we know everything together. I have no doubt. I have no doubt. No matter when I mess up, there will someone that will lovingly <laughs> write in and correct me. 
And I'm okay with that. Yes, with a sandwich too, a compliment sandwich. Yeah. All right, then we're going to move on to some more good news. This one's from Mark, pronouns he and him. Dear Bean family, I've been living abroad in Germany since the mid-90s and for several years just passively observed the goings-on back in the States from afar, sometimes with dismay, uh, like the W years, and other times with great joy, the election of the first African-American president. After all, I had good, inexpensive health coverage and the many other benefits of a progressive government that is responsive to its constituents and not just corporations. But it wasn't until 2008, yes, Obama was a big reason for it, that I started to become active in U.S. politics and work to affect positive change in my homeland by joining Democrats abroad. Mm. This has been an amazing organization to be part of, filled with remarkable and very talented people. And for me personally, it has provided much purpose and friendship through my occasional bouts of depression. Ugh. Of course, since the orange menace has descended upon us, our members have become especially supercharged into action. This year alone, we've seen global membership increase by 40% to nearly 200,000 people. We have an international phone banking community, which has made over 500,000 calls just during this election cycle, and we've been able to assist countless expat voters, many of whom are voting for the first time, navigate the often convoluted process of requesting and sending in their absentee ballots. Together worldwide, we're going to elect Joe Biden and Kamala Harris to the White House and sweep Congress with a blue wave, securing liberal democracy and a progressive future for all of us. And for any expat listening that hasn't yet done it, it's not too late. Go right now to votefromabroad.org. Let me say that again. Votefromabroad.org to request your ballot because more than ever, every vote counts. Allison, you know, I'm thinking about all these. We've got these new voters and some of these other good news stories. We've got these expats that are like, holy shit, I didn't realize the country's getting even worse with, you know, that are starting to vote again. I really feel like these numbers, one, I think they're going to be record breaking and hopefully they'll just, I think they're just going to blow us out. I, I love seeing this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And every story I hear and every tweet I see and every post I see and everything on social media about people who've never voted or Republican voters who've always voted Republican are voting for Biden and, and Kamala. And it's just, it's such, uh, it's like the hope is palpable. So thanks yeah. for sending that in. Next up from Lena, pronouns she and her. My oldest niece is voting in a presidential election for the first time. Even better news, my husband and I have already submitted our ballots, and my brother-in-law voted for Biden this year, as well as his normally conservative wife. It was his first time voting as well. And we got everyone to vote blue all the way down the ballot and vote for more funding for education in our state of Arizona. We badly need more funding going into education. I'm very hopeful this year. Lena, I totally know what you mean. I was part of the uh, public education system for a minute in, in Arizona when we first moved there before I headed back to Catholic school. And it was wonderful uh, back in the 80s. And it, it's uh, since Republican leadership has taken over, it's gone by the wayside. So thank you to you and your family. For, for voting blue up and down the ballot. We're going to flip Arizona. All right, Allison, this next one is a confession. I'm a little mad at you for uh, somehow <laughs> making me land on this, but I'm going to do my best to get through it. <sighs> this is from Art, pronouns he and him. My girlfriend's greatest joy is to pop my pimples. Whatever, I try not to yuck her yum. No. My mouth's already watering, <laughs> not for good reasons. Anyway, we've been together for a decade, and I've never brought her this much joy this consistently. She's never been happier with my pimple production than she has during this pandemic. This is where it gets good, people. I think the combination of me wearing the same shirt for days, <laughs> taking fewer showers, and sweating out a couple of Southern California heat waves has been the perfect recipe. Art, 
<laughs> said, and by the way, pictures of pandemic pod pimples not attached. Thank you, sir. Thank you, you know, very much. You know what I thought that, you know how I read that at first? I thought it said, I think the combination of me wearing my shame shirt for days. <laughs> <laughs> it could be anything. Ladies, God bless you. That little story just made me a little gayer, a little bit <laughs> God bless you, Art. I'm sure, well, obviously you're a good guy, but my goodness. If you listen to the Bean Team, of course you're a good guy. And from now on, you're going to call it your shame shirt, okay? Uh, yeah, your shame shirt. <laughs> thank you. And thank you, seriously, for not including photos. We appreciate that. Um, and again, if you have confessions corrections um, or any good news stories, personal, uh, political, whatever you feel we need to know, just head over to dailybeanspod.com, click on contact, send them in. Uh, if you're not a patron and you would like to become one or donate a one-year subscription for just 36 bucks to someone in need, you can do that by going to dailybeanspod.com and scrolling down on the front page, you'll see the donation, or you can sign up to get one of those free memberships, or you can go to patreon.com slash wrote and uh, sign up there as well. We're also on Supercast, um, uh, if you aren't, uh, for some reason, don't like Patreon, but we have everything available to you on, on either site, so I appreciate that. Do you have any uh, final... Oh, I want to let everybody know, oh, this is so great. I, I spoke to Today, I got uh, to talk for almost 40 minutes with Lieutenant Colonel Vindeman's wife, Rachel Vindeman. No, that's amazing. And she is just, she is so forthcoming and she spoke a lot and, and she gave a lot of really interesting information about what was going on last September, how it kind of relates to what's going on now with the New York Post story and, and uh, w you know, different trips that, that um, Colonel Vindeman wasn't invited on. And, you know, she's speaking out and she's... She's an incredible, incredible woman, and so you, you should definitely tune in tomorrow. Oh, definitely. I, I want to listen to this. I can't wait. Um, just if anyone's hearing this on Thursday before 4 p.m. is Pacific Standard Time, head on over to Facebook. I'm going to be doing um, a Facebook Live with Olivia Travel on their page, but I'll be doing some jokes for about 15 minutes, and then I've got a one-on-one -on -one with no one other than Allison and my new BFF, Mary Trump. So uh, it's going to be Facebook Live. Nothing's going to be edited. If you can head over there, this is Thursday, uh, the 22nd, 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern. Hell yeah. Awesome. Everyone, thank you so much for uh, sending in your stories. We will speak to you tomorrow. Big show. So, so stay tuned. Until then, everyone, please take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. Take care of your mental health and take care of the planet. I've been AG. And I've been DG. And them's the beans. The Daily Beans is executive produced and directed by AG and Jordan Coburn and engineered and edited by Mackenzie Mazell and Starburns Industries. Our marketing manager, executive assistant, production and social media direction is Amanda Reeder. Fact-checking and research by AG, Jordan Coburn, and Amanda Reeder. Our music is written and performed by They Might Be Giants. Our web design and branding are by Joel Reeder with Moxie Design Studios. And our website is dailybeanspod.com. <laughs>